This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for May 11th, 2018. This episode is brought to you by SellYourMac.com. SellYourMac.com will give you cash for your used Apple computers and devices. And keep listening for an extra special offer for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. In this week's episode, we'll tell you how your computer's firewall works and the levels of security different kinds of firewalls provide. Plus, a new security feature that's been popular in recent betas of iOS may be included in the next final release. Microsoft tempts hackers by giving Office JavaScript support. And Metal is a new Mac hacking tool. We'll have the details. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. We've talked a couple of times recently about something called Gray Key, which is sold by a company to allow law enforcement agencies to crack iPhones and iPads. It essentially performs a brute force attack on an iPhone to guess the passcode. Now, this isn't something that we need to worry about individually. No one's going to pick up your phone and say, ooh, I want to open this. I'm going to go spend $20,000 on a gray key so I can get access to your phone. But Apple is taking this very seriously, and they introduced a feature in the iOS 11.3 beta, but it wasn't in the final release, and now it's in the iOS 11.4 beta that will deactivate the lightning port on a device if the phone hasn't been unlocked in seven days. Josh, can you explain what this means and what does this have to do with something like the gray key device? Right, yeah, what does this have to do with security at all? <laughs> so what what the iOS 11.4 beta is doing is it's not entirely disabling the lightning port, it's only disabling data transfer through the lightning port if the device hasn't been unlocked for seven days. So the purpose of this, in theory, is that let's say somebody has gotten a hold of your device, you're accused of a crime, and now they want to get access to your device. And so they, maybe they want to send it out to mail it to Celebrite, or maybe they want to buy a, a gray key device and try to hack into your phone. And they don't want to pay for overnight shipping with FedEx. <laughs> They're just going to take the two-day free shipping. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea behind this is that now, if somebody wants to get into your device using a method like this, they're going to have to do it more quickly. It can't just sit on a shelf somewhere in a warehouse for a month or something like that. And then, yeah, eventually we'll get to it. They've got to get on this right away. So potentially what this means is, you know, if if depending on, you know, the country, you know, they may have to get a, a court order or or something like that in order to have legal authority to break into your device. And sometimes those may take a little bit of time to get. And so it's a race against the clock. And Apple is trying to be on your side to protect your privacy from potentially a, a government actor or government's, you know, state level actor who might be trying to get into your phone. Well, it also protects your phone if you've lost it. Let's say you've lost it someplace and someone finds it a few days later, it gives them less time to try and get into it. Now, th we, we have to remember that there's all sorts of security in the phone that after a certain number of failed passcode attempts, it locks itself. But you know, I think it's very possible over time that these solutions will trickle down and won't cost twenty or thirty thousand dollars. And your average everyday hacker 
other than law enforcement agencies will get access to them. So I think this is a good way of protecting people's devices in general. I, I think seven days is a long time, though. I would like to be able to do this after maybe 24 hours so that if I ever do lose my phone, I'll know that no one can ever get into it after 24 hours. It's worth noting, of course, that if you just lose your phone and you have Find My iPhone on, you can send a command to erase it. But that only works when it connects to a network, when it connects to Wi-Fi or a cellular network. So if someone turns on the phone, without takes the SIM card out, turns on the phone, and it's not able to access Wi-Fi, then your erase command won't get to the phone. Right, right. Or if they very intentionally turn on the phone when it's in some place where it can't get any kind of radio signal at all, a Faraday cage, <laughs> to use a geeky term. Well, you have a Faraday cage in your basement, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, that's my security <laughs> bubble. If anyone listening is old enough to remember, it's Josh's version of the cone of silence from Get Smart. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, this is an interesting security feature. And again, I think this should be user configurable one day, two days, five days, seven days, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an important next step for Apple to take because um, in 24 hours, maybe um, that may be a little too soon for some users. So let's say, I mean, if it's a, if it's a precise 24 hours, say, and somebody, you know, plugs their... Uh, their phone into their computer once a day, and maybe it's not exactly 24 hours, and now they realize, you know, wait, wait a minute, how come my phone's not showing up in iTunes now? Um, you know, it, it, it could be um, a, a tech support issue in that case. It's not about when the phone is plugged in, it's when the phone is unlocked. So if you unlock your phone at least once every 24 hours, you won't have a problem. And the only annoyance that you'll get is if you plug your phone into your computer, then you just have to put your passcode in. It's not blocking anything. It's just putting a lock on that needs a physical passcode. Because what GrayKey does, and you explained this to me before the show, is when you connect a device, it installs some sort of custom firmware so it can get around this passcode protection that Apple has built into the iPhone. Right. This seems to be what's going on, because basically the way that GrayKey works, from what's been described, is that you actually plug your iOS device into a gray key. It takes about two minutes, and then you can unplug it and let it do its thing. So that implies that there's some kind of software or firmware being installed onto that iOS device. And so all it takes is that initial two-minute connection to the gray key, and now it's good to go. So if it's been you know, six days and 23 hours and you plug it into the gray key, even if it takes longer than that hour to, you know, for the gray key technology to hack into your, your phone, um, you've already made that connection. And so it would, it would still presumably work. In other security news this week, we learned that Microsoft did something a little bit surprising. They did not bring back Clippy. That's not what it is, <laughs> but they added the ability to use JavaScript in Microsoft office. Now, We've been talking about macroviruses in Word and Excel for years, and, and it's actually one of the rare cross-platform types of malware, and, and they've been very annoying over the years. Why would they want to put another scripting language into Microsoft Office, which could create other problems with malware? This is such a bad idea. <laughs> okay, so JavaScript is great in theory. There are a lot of things that you can do with JavaScript. The problem with JavaScript 
is that it's also possible to do some nasty things with JavaScript. Uh, we've talked about uh, you know cryptojacking before. the The idea that a JavaScript running in the background on a web page could be using your processing power in your Mac or even your iOS device to try to mine cryptocurrency for somebody who injected that code in the page. So JavaScript can do some things that you may not necessarily want it to do. And in fact, that's the first proof of concept that anyone <laughs> decided to go after was cryptocurrency mining. So as soon as Microsoft added this feature to the, I think they call it insider preview of Microsoft Office, somebody said, oh, wouldn't that be interesting? If it runs JavaScript, that means I could do uh, a bit, you know, a Bitcoin or, or Monero miner, right? I could just see what I could do with this. And sure enough, th they did. And it only took probably minutes for them to code this because they could reuse JavaScript that already was out there in the public. And uh, they made a version that connects to coinhive.com and starts mining currency. It's worth explaining a little bit about what JavaScript is. Some people may be familiar with the Java programming language, which is a cross-platform language. JavaScript is different. I don't think there's any relationship between the two. JavaScript is one of the most widely used scripting languages because it powers websites. It's pretty rare that you load a web page these days and there's not some JavaScript doing something. And this JavaScript handles the way things display. If you have sort of fancy transitions on a page, you click an image and it pops up in a certain way. That's all JavaScript. And JavaScript in and of itself is not malware. It's not really used for malicious purposes, but it can be. I, I think the reason Microsoft might have done this is because there are so many web developers who do use JavaScript that it's a very common language. You can even write JavaScript in Apple's script editor, which used to be only for Apple script. So I, I, they might have had good intentions, but, you know, all it takes is a couple of security-minded people to look at this and say, you know what, how can we use this to do something nefarious? And it didn't take too long. There'll be an article on the Intego Mac Security blog talking about this a little bit more with some links to some examples. I, I just find it a little bit surprising. It seems like something that Microsoft should not have done. In other news, there's a new Mac-specific hacking tool called Metal that was recently discovered. That's M-E-T-T-L-E. -T -T First, we should kind of explain a little bit what a hacking tool is. Basically, it's, it's a tool that can be run on a computer, in this case a Mac, that can allow an attacker to, to have some additional leverage, so to do, be able to do some additional things to that device or that computer. And in the case of this particular hacking tool, it's based on Meterpreter, um, and then the Mac variant of it is called Metal. And what it does is it's essentially just a, um, a repackaged Metasploit framework. So we should talk about what Metasploit is. Metasploit is a software package that essentially lets uh, an attacker, so maybe they're somebody who's a legitimate penetration tester, somebody who does security tests to see where the weaknesses are in your organization. We call that kind of person a white hat hacker. Right, exactly. A white hat hacker is somebody who will use security software and functionality like this for good to try to help you to improve your security. And that's, that's exactly what Metasploit is designed to do. However, <laughs> the challenge is that, of course, the bad guys can use the exact same tools to attack. And so this is a way to leverage Metasploit technology to potentially attack 
your your computer. So what's the risk of this? And how can you protect against it? Well, so the risk is fairly low because this is something that somebody would have to get access to your machine to install. So it's not something where, you know, you load a web page and now all of a sudden you've got metal installed and it's hacking your computer. Um, more likely, this would be something that somebody would use once they've broken into your computer. An, an evil maid attack, for example. Somebody breaks into your computer when you're away from it. Evil maid? <laughs> this is a real term, an evil maid attack? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the idea here is, let's say you leave your computer behind in a hotel room, and somebody, maybe it's Tom Cruise, breaks into your hotel room, and if you don't have a password on it, or if you've if you've got a really weak password, or if you've still got the original version of High Sierra that had that bug where you could just, you know, type in root and without any password and break into a computer. If your Mac is not well protected, then somebody just opens up your Mac and they can install whatever they want and do pretty much anything to your machine, including install metal. I don't know about you, but I want to see that movie where Tom Cruise plays a maid. <laughs> So if you do have metal, how do you protect yourself? I mean, does this is can can an antivirus like Intego Virus Barrier detect this? Yeah, that's a great question. And the the way that it works is it it's actually something that runs in memory. So there normally with most malware there's some file that exists on your computer and that's what the antivirus program will detect. In this case, because it's something that's running in memory, there's not there's not a, a file to scan and say, oh, yep, that's it, and I just need to delete that. Because it's running in memory, the best way to detect this is actually to use a two-way firewall. That is, a firewall that not only blocks incoming connections, which is something that even the basic firewall that's built into macOS can do, but it also needs to block outgoing connections, unknown or previously unseen outgoing connections. You know, that gives us a good opportunity to talk about what a firewall is. And I think after the break, we'll spend some time discussing how a firewall works, what it does, why it's important to have one. So for now, th this isn't really high on the list of we should worry about this and lose sleep. Yeah, probably not. It's, it's worth reading the article. We do have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog about that. Um, so, so check it out, and you can get kind of a better idea of what metal can do and what it might look like if this is running on your system. Have you filled out our podcast survey yet? It only takes a few minutes, and each month we'll randomly select one person who will receive a $100 Visa gift card. We began this survey last month in April, and we have our first winner, Sebastian L. from Germany. Thanks so much for taking time to fill out the survey. We'll be sending you an email with details shortly. We're still running the survey. It's not too late to enter for our May drawing. You'll find a link in the show notes. Please fill out the survey and let us know what you think of the podcast, and you might be our next winner. Your old Apple device is probably worth some money, but it can be a big hassle trying to resell your own equipment. SellYourMac.com makes it fast, safe, and easy to make money from your used Mac desktops and laptops, iPhones, and iPads. SellYourMac.com pays top dollar for your used Apple products. Come on, you've probably got some old gear you've been meaning to do something with. Are you going to just let it sit there and collect dust? Or are you going to collect some cash? 
The best way to find out how much money you can make right now is to go to SellYourMac.com and enter your product's details. They'll give you an offer instantly. SellYourMac.com even provides you a free prepaid shipping label. Then all you have to do is send them the device. Once they receive it and processing begins, you'll quickly get a check in the mail or payment via PayPal. Tens of thousands of satisfied customers have made extra cash selling their used equipment to SellYourMac.com. And you should too. It's fast, it's safe, and it's easy. And here's a special offer. Go to SellYourMac.com slash Intego and you'll get a $10 bonus on items worth $25 or more. Go to SellYourMac.com slash Intego and start cashing in on your old Apple gear. SellYourMac.com slash Intego. Josh, a quick question. Last week we were talking about screenshots and I sent you some information about how to change the screenshot folder. So instead of all your screenshots littering your desktop, they're more neatly organized in a single folder. Did you do this? I did. Yeah. And I like it. Um, now, you know, you might kind of laugh at me a little bit because I just created a folder called screenshots on my desktop. <laughs> so it's still on my desktop, but at least they're going into one nice one folder. neat folder. Yes. Right. Instead of hundreds. And, and even on the desktop is fine because if, if that to you is a familiar area, you can get too quickly to open the folder. That's fine. But notice that when you open the folder in general, they're all like nice, either in a list or as icons, they're all like in order lined up and everything instead of being all spread out. Yeah, it's it's definitely nicer than having a bunch of icons all over my desktop because I, I do take a lot of screenshots. You're welcome, Josh. <laughs> the other day I was watching a TV series called The Good Fight. This is a sort of a sequel to The Good Wife. And it's a very tech-savvy series, and they're constantly talking about things like internet, and they've got robots going around in the offices and the good wife, and, you know, there's people using Twitter and searches and file sharing. And, of course, they don't use the name Twitter. They're, the search company that they use is called Chumahum, and one of the characters in the show is the, the CEO of this company. And th there's a sort of Reddit-type thing. I think it's called Chumit or something like that. So anyway, in one of these episodes, they were talking about something about the house, there was some malware and that the firewall didn't protect against it. It made me realize we hear this term firewall all the time. Usually if it's on the news and they mention firewall, you get a shot of someone in the shadows in front of a screen typing code really, really fast. And I thought it would be good to explain what a firewall is. I think most people don't know what it is. If you just take the metaphor of a firewall, it's a wall that separates two parts of a building so a fire can't get through. You may see them in hotels, and it's technically not called a firewall. You have fire doors that shut and that isolate different parts of a hotel. But what is a firewall on a computer? What does it do? Well, as we mentioned earlier, Macs have a built-in firewall, which provides a very basic and, I would say, rudimentary level of security. The idea behind the Mac's built-in firewall is that it prevents certain things that are on the network that you're connected to from being able to get into your computer. So this is a firewall that blocks incoming connections, because earlier you also talked about outgoing. We'll get to that. Right. And, and that's all that this type of firewall does. It, it prevents inbound connections, and that's it. Okay. Let's just look at some basics about how networks work and how information goes in and out of computers. In general, you send a request to a computer when you want something. So you want a web page and you send an outbound request to a server. The server responds, says, hey, I'm happy to give you this page. And it sends you the data and that comes back in. Now, 
it's authorized by your computer because you've sent the outbound request and you've told your computer's built-in DNS system that you're because you sent the outbound request, you're accepting the inbound reply to it, right? Yeah, and so so the idea is that if you have something malicious running on your machine, it's going to make that outbound connection. And then when it gets a reply back from that malicious server, your computer's going to say, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I requested that. No problem. And it's going to let it right in. Right. So when I do this with my web browser with Safari, it's because, well, I've requested it. And if I load a web page, it may be loading data from 10 different servers, but I've still asked for all that data. And my Safari is going to be more than happy to accept it. But if it's malware, I would want to know if there's something that I haven't authorized that's requesting data from another server, wouldn't I? That's absolutely right. Yeah, and that's that's where it's important to have not just this built-in inbound firewall, but also to have an outbound firewall. So a two-way firewall that handles both traffic both directions. Okay, so how does a firewall block traffic? To start with. Well, first of all, I think it would be useful to explain in a little bit more detail how that connection in, in your web page example, how that works. So if you, let's say you pull up Safari and you type in apple.com. Well, it has to get to apple.com somehow. So there's, uh, we've talked about DNS before. There's this, this translation from a human readable, easily readable thing like apple.com that you can say out loud easily to an IP address, which might be something dot something dot something. So that's one layer of that. There's a translation from a .com or some domain into, an, into the IP address of that server. There's also a port. A port is, you could think of it just like, a, you know, in a marina, right? So, so you've, you've got ports that are specifically designated for certain types of traffic. Now, most of the time when you view a web page, you're, you're either going to be using port 80. Now, that's an unsecured connection. So that's HTTP colon slash slash without the S in there. And the other is port 443, which is the HTTPS, the secure version of that. So if you type in apple.com in a browser without anything ahead of that, it's going to immediately try to connect on port 80. And then Apple's server is going to say, oh, no, you should be talking to me securely. And it's going to redirect. And now you'll be talking to that server on port 443. And you'll get the HTTPS in the bar, in the address bar in your browser. So what we've got is a combination of an IP address and a port. And these ports are numerical. And again, we'll use ports 80 and 443. There's no way that I can connect to port 80 to send email or to use file transfers, can I? No, it doesn't really work that way. Um, typically, these ports are, are designated for a particular purpose. Now, it is possible, however, since you mentioned that, um, malware sometimes does intentionally use the wrong port. In particular, it might be trying to use port 80 or port 443 to disguise its traffic and make it look like you know, something, you know, legitimate. Maybe it's just a web browser connection and that's it. And the idea behind that is mostly to try to get past corporate firewalls. You know, the firewall that your company has running a hardware firewall. So th this is another important distinction. There's hardware firewalls, which is something that usually sits at the edge of your network. So in, in the corporate example, you're sitting at, at your desk, you've got your Mac and You've got, you know, a few switches and routers that you might have to go through, and then it gets to your company's firewall, 
And that is what separates your internal network at your company from the public internet. So that's that's a hardware firewall. And with, with big corporate firewalls, they're either standalone devices like routers or they're just computers that are set up as servers that are able to handle the amount of traffic that a company might be running through to and from the internet. Right. Most companies will have a dedicated hardware firewall device. Uh, it might be, you know, a Cisco ASA router, or it might be a Palo Alto Networks firewall, or there's lots of different, you know, big companies that specialize in firewall hardware. And so that's an example of a hardware firewall. And what we're mostly talking about here is the idea of a software firewall, something that exists on your computer to segregate it from the outside network. Okay, so I'm going to link to a technical support document on the Intego website, Understanding Security and Net Barrier, which talks about how the Net Barrier firewall works. And there are a number of screenshots. It's worth looking at them because the visual aspect shows you what's being blocked and what's being allowed. By default, what's going on is that incoming connections are blocked, period. Unless I have sent an outgoing connection and I'm getting a response, all incoming connections are blocked. W would this affect my traffic in any way, my use of my computer? For the average user, you do want incoming connections to be blocked um, in general, because most of the time they're going to be coming from just some other device on your network that shouldn't have access to your computer. So that's the importance of, of having an inbound firewall. Now, the outbound functionality is important too, because let's say that you have some some malware that got on your machine. Maybe you just installed some software and unbeknownst to you, it came bundled with some adware and it's trying to talk to the server that's going to give you advertisements and have them pop up on your screen. That process that's, that's running in the background on your computer that's trying to connect to that advertising server in this case, now this is something new that's that's running on your computer that your computer has never run this program before. And so when it initially tries to connect to anything on the internet, wherever it might be, regardless of even what port it's trying to connect on, if you've got an outbound firewall, it's going to take a look at that and go, wait a minute, what the heck is this? I've never seen this app before. I don't know that this is an authorized app. And so what it'll do, an outbound firewall will put up a dialog box on your screen and it'll say, hey, this program, this process running in the background, whatever it might be, is called this, is trying to connect to this server. And it might tell you on this port. And it's going to give you the option to block that. If it's something that you don't recognize and you didn't just install some software, there's a good possibility that that might be some malware that's trying to connect to some server on the internet. One of the problems with all this is that when you look at the specific application rules that you'll see in NetBarrier or any other outbound firewall, you'll see a number of services that you certainly don't recognize. And you'll see Safari and Mail and iTunes, but you'll also see com.apple.safari.safebrowsing.service. And some of these can have cryptic names, so it's hard to know what's safe and what's not, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And, uh, you know, for, for the average user... You know, all this com.apple.who knows what is is kind of gobbledygook. Like, what what does that really mean? How, how do I know that this is an actual Apple program and not just something pretending to be? Yeah, I'm looking in Activity Monitor. This is a utility that's in your application slash utilities folder. And I'm just looking at the processes that are accessing the network on my Mac. And one is called 
R-A-P-P-O-R-T-D. One is called USB MUX-D. Another one is Network Service Proxy. Another one is FPSD. And then there's Dist Noted D and Core Brightness D and Watchdog D. Uh-oh, Watchdog D. That sounds serious. So how do I know or, or how does the firewall know that these processes are safe? Well, a good firewall is going to know what processes are built into the system, which ones actually come with your operating system. So that's an important first step. So Watchdog D is something that comes as part of Mac OS. And so your firewall is going to know that and it's going to realize that if that needs to make an outgoing connection or some other process that comes built into your system needs to make an outgoing connection, that's okay. And that'll be whitelisted by default. Okay. Yeah. So so there's there's whitelists and blacklists. The blacklist might contain some known uh, types of malware that might try to connect in certain ways or to certain servers. And you also want to have things whitelisted that come built into your operating system that have legitimate reasons to be connecting to servers. For example, you need to make sure that Apple's software updating functionality has the ability to communicate with Apple servers or you're never going to get security updates. So um, so it's very important for a firewall to, uh, to have some pre-built rules that automatically know about things like this and enable or disable by default. Where it gets to be the gray area where it might put a dialog box up for you to determine what to do is if it's something unknown, something that's not in the pre-built you know, blacklist or whitelist of that product. Okay, so we're talking about connecting to the internet, but there's also a risk when you're on a local network. Now, I've got three Macs in my house. I've got an iMac and a laptop and a Mac mini server. And sometimes I share files. So my Macs need to be able to communicate with each other. And my Macs need to be able to accept incoming connections for certain ports. One of them being the port that's used for file sharing, for example. Another one for screen sharing when I want to look at the screen of my Mac mini. But if you're in a hotel or an airport and you're on a Wi-Fi network, you don't want people on that same network to be able to access anything on your computer. Am I right? Right. That's a really good point because you have trusted networks that you connect to, maybe your home network, maybe potentially your work network. If you connect to some other networks on occasion, like, you know, Starbucks Wi-Fi, oh, McDonald's has Wi-Fi, this, uh, you know, airport has Wi-Fi. Those are connections that you do not want to have the same level of trust. Most of the time, those are networks that don't even require a password to connect to them, which means there is no security on that connection. So if you are connecting to that network now, anybody on that network can see all the other computers. Try this sometime. If you're even you could even do this on an iPhone. I did this recently um, when, when I was attending RSA conference. I took uh, public transport. Uh, I used the, the BART which is Bay Area Rapid Transit. And it's basically just a train that takes you here to there. And just out of curiosity, on my iPhone, I opened up the AirDrop menu and I was shocked at how many devices I could see that all were accepting any connection from anybody who wanted to AirDrop them something. And uh, because people had not really configured the AirDrop well, and it was just open to anybody. Well, it's the same thing on your computer as well. Uh, if, if you, you could do the same thing, you can open up uh, a new window, click on AirDrop, 
and just see how many other devices you see. And chances are you're gonna see a lot of devices that are all in the vicinity of your computer and those devices can connect to each other in other ways too that may not be as obvious as AirDrop. Well, I think what's more worrisome is if someone connects to your device using standard file sharing, because if someone sends you a file with AirDrop, you will get an alert. With standard file sharing, they can access certain folders on your Mac that you've set up to share on your network, either at home or, on, or at work. And they may be able to somehow either put files in there that might trick you into double-clicking them later or somehow get more access into your computer. So ideally, what you want to do is when you're on a public network is you want to turn off all incoming local connections. Right. And a good firewall will do that for you. It'll have different profiles depending on what network you're connected to. So if you're on a public network, an untrusted network, it's going to treat that network differently than it's going to treat your home or work network. Okay. There's a lot here to understand. And so I'm going to put several links into the show notes about Intego Net Barrier so you can get a better idea of what this firewall does. You know, it sounds complicated the way we're discussing it because we want to make sure that people understand what it does. But really, a good firewall is something that takes you one minute to set up and then you don't have to worry about it. You'll get some alerts if something dangerous is going on, but actually the best firewall is working in the background and you won't know it's there it's not going to slow down your computer at all. It'll be protecting you without telling you. That's absolutely true that, that a good firewall from that point on is just going to be protecting you in the background and keeping you safe. Okay. With that in mind, Josh, I'm going to go check my firewalls. I think you should do the same. Stay secure. All right. Stay secure, Kirk. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, sponsored by SellYourMac.com. You can get a $10 bonus on items worth $25 or more. Go to sellyourmac.com slash Intego and start cashing in on your old Apple gear. Be sure to get every episode of the Intego Mac podcast by subscribing at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.